Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. I've got a song in my heart again, and it goes a little something like this. Don't know much about history. Don't know much apothecary. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I never took. But I do know that I love food. And I know that if you love food too, what a wonderful world this would be. This is episode number 97. Well, hello. That riff on Sam Cooke's classic song, A Wonderful World, in the intro will make more sense in a moment, I promise. But one thing's for sure. I heard your voice loud and clear since episode 96 when folks somewhat decisively voted for the new intro music you just heard as the permanent replacement for the one I used since mid-2012. Thanks for helping me decide. (laughs) It was very cool of you. And I also want to say I'm grateful that you listened through my off-key, rather quirky singing. I promise, I promise it only gets better from here on out. First, let's give a special thanks to our show's new patrons on Patreon, Liz and Nadia. You two are rad, rad, rad. And as you might imagine, sweet, sassy, molassy, you make me happy. Now, if you're tired about hearing from me how you can support this show and our community, I have another new thing for you. Take it away, Mary. Hi there. This is Mary from the Dallas area. Smart and Simple Matters is supported by listeners like me and you through Patreon.com, iTunes reviews, word of mouth, and some other really nifty ways. I invite you to add your support as well at joelzeslowski.com slash support, and thanks in advance. Mary, thanks a ton for recording that message of support and explaining how others can support the show like you do. I'll be sure to include other verbal notes from listeners like you in the future, and you can always leave me a message too, which I might share on the show with your permission at joelzeslowski.com slash voicemail. If you've been listening to SASM for a bit, you probably know me as the eternally sunshine, lollipops, rainbows kind of enthusiastic guy. I am for the most part, but I also love to tell you about the things that are real, the things that are a bummer. And one thing that's bumming the heck out of me lately is having to cancel the Simple Rev 2016 event. Uh, My partner in all things Simple Rev, Sarah Wakecamp, she and I made the call to cancel our annual event last week because we didn't hit the critical threshold of support we needed by the end of March 2016. There is a huge backstory to tell about the decision to skip a big Simple Rev event this year, and I'm sure you will let me know if you would like to hear about it in a future episode. For now, 
Just know that everything else our community is doing with Simple Rev, especially a now thriving Simple Rev local, that remains all kinds of fantastic. You know what else is fantastic? I, well, I guess it's it's not really a what. It's more like a, a who is fantastic. Her name's Alex Stewart. She's my guest for this episode. I discovered Alex through my friend and unofficial guest scout for this show, Brooke McCallery of the Slow Home Podcast. And I knew I wanted you to hear from Alex too. Her main thing is doing the best that we can to move to a low-tox life, as she calls it. And our chat, ooh, our chat was part history lesson. It was part chemistry and biology lesson. The whole time, it was 100% fun and inspiring. All these things I don't know much about, history, apothecary, and French, she knows plenty about. So you're going to learn how Alex went from a world's best bartender to a low-toxicity crusader, why food as love can be unhealthy, especially for kids, her number one tip on how to give kids ownership over what and how they eat, and how to permanently clean up our world instead of just repeating the same one-time acts over and over and over I assure you there will be no more songs in this episode. You only get to dance as your happy feet and hands, mouth, and brain light up and enjoy some wholesome goodness. Here we go. If you're feeling a little low right now, that may actually be a good thing, especially according to my guest for this episode, Alex Stewart of Low Tox Life. She often says that she was born drinking shots of enthusiasm before an all-you-can-eat buffet piled high with creative ADD and buckets of justice. Yeah, she's a certified... She, she's even chuckling about that. I can't, I can't do it, too. <laughs> I was just thinking about when I wrote that. <laughs> it's, it's gold. It's gold. I'm going to keep going, Alex. <laughs> We're rolling here. <laughs> yep. She is a certified world changer who helps people want to, not have to, make smart changes to feel more awesome. Those are her words, not mine. And when she's not helping making individual people healthier with nifty recipes and groovy e-courses, I hear she's playing with her new puppy. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Joel. It's great to be here. Well, wonderful. I Oh, goodness, so many places that we can go, but I want to make sure that we start where I always start a conversation with something I call the seeds of awesomeness. To help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. Can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or one or two experiences you had growing up that had a big impact? Oh, that's such a great question. Okay, I have something I could share. Yes. Uh, I grew up going for walks with my dad, who was... um, very environmentally conscious and he would always bring a bag so that we could collect rubbish on the foreshore. And I think it's some of those early, early memories that start to shape your care for something bigger than just you, your life, your family, your school friends. Um, Because as I grew older, I really started to get into just caring about the world bigger picture. I was never into the trashy magazines and the celebs and the, sure, I had a couple of teen, you know, idol crushes on various actors and things, you know, who doesn't go through that phase. But I was more of a teen who had 
um, who, who would draw posters that had like prejudice is ignorance written on my wall and I hated inequality and I, um, I, I hadn't figured out, of course, how to do anything to change anything and I certainly hadn't thought about um, what I would even move into um, career-wise. But I, did rem- I do remember when I met my first boyfriend thinking for one of the first times in my life at that time, I was meeting someone who was like me, who wasn't afraid to think differently to th- and who did think big picture. And he was one of the people who gave me the confidence to explore that idea of doing work that matters. And what was really interesting to me in my early 20s was that I still ended up getting sucked into the societal norm pressure of find a reliable guy, get a good job, um, move in together, um, start to plan to get married and um, just keep your head down and and build up your assets and, you know, those really um, sort of uh, measured industrial age Have kind of markers for success. and make sure. Yeah, yeah. That, yep, uh-huh. Um, I, I but, know very uh, well. I was there yes, too. Yes, when I was 25 I had what I call a quarter-life crisis that um, where the boyfriend left me, which was the best thing that could have ever happened to me in retrospect, <laughs> Um, but, and that set off a chain reaction of, oh my God, I don't even like this job. Why am I even doing this job? And, you know, everything else. And I dramatically changed my life and, um, started to explore who it was that I was and rebuilt from there. Um, and I spent many years in hospitality after that, um, time, just running bars, becoming uh, weirdly one of the best cocktail bartenders in the world for a time. And, um, well, and but what that, can sorry. we pause there for a moment? Yeah, yeah, sure. What are the metrics for becoming one of the best in the world? Well, you know? you, you'd have to run one of the best bars that would constantly be voted, you know, top 10 bars of the world that you have to visit. I ran one of them, a little bar in Sydney. It was very exclusive and um, and winning cocktail competitions. So, you know, you would enter these drinks competitions, present drinks, um, and uh, and I won a fair few of them. Okay. And, um, and, yeah, so it was just, you know, and especially being a girl, I, it was always like she's the best female bartender. It was very annoying mm-hmm. as a feminist to have to be labeled, why can't I just be one of the best bartenders? Why does there have to be the word female below it, um, before it? But anyway, I digress. So what was interesting about hospitality for me was the amount of people that I met and and how how opening, eye-opening it was of everything that life could be, every possibility that it could bring. And um, through then a couple of health challenges and then my final um wave of consciousness, of course, having my son, was this um, joining the dots between what we put on and in us and how it's affecting not only our health but our planet. And then once I lifted the lid and started to read some incredible literature like the wonderful book Slow Death by Rubber Duck, for example, and and so many other books in that realm, learning about um, the power of lobbying and how chemicals come to be okay, it seems, um, innocent until proven guilty, I like to say, and um, and how that's happening in food and cosmetics and cleaning and everything. I just thought, oh, my gosh, and that justice um, me, the, the core of my being, I've always been justice-oriented, 
um, since those early days um, really started to come out. And I thought I need this space of wellness and healthiness is just focusing on skinniness and it's crazy. There's so much more to it to get lasting change and to make people actually reconnect with values. Um, and when we're connected with our values, we then choose completely differently anyway. Um, and so it's not hard to make your changes that you want to you want to make. And um, that's why I always say I help people want to make changes and feel good about making those changes instead of that sense that, you know, anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s um, through the diets and, and all the, the um, fractionalised eating plans and do this and do that for to be a size two. Um, well, let me ask has, you this. Mm. I'm, I'm noticing I lost track of the timeline a little bit, I'll have to admit, in terms of your continuous evolution, which sounds really neat. But <laughs> while you're in... <laughs> I was like, Jesus, stop, stop talking, Alex. Just let the guy ask you a question. You're doing good. I do the same thing when people talk to me and this and this, and I'm getting more excited. I'm getting more excited. And woo, look at me. Somebody better stop me. You're doing fine. <laughs> But back in your hospitality days, where you are one of the all-time greats as far as cocktails and, and running this exclusive place, did you have tension between these drinks that you were pouring, these chemical-infused, most of the stuff that you're serving there probably isn't the best thing for people to be putting into their bodies. Mm -hmm. Did you have a, a tension at that point in time where what I'm doing isn't necessarily making these people who are coming to me any more healthy? Yeah, not hugely. Like I think there's a lot of, it's like anything, it's like going to a great restaurant versus McDonald's, you know. The quality of your ingredients is paramount and we were using fresh organic squeezed fruit, we were using very good spirits that didn't have fake colours or weird stuff put in them, you know. Of course drinking alcohol is not necessarily the best thing for one's health. Um, but I definitely don't believe one or two every now and then. You know, I'm a Frenchie, so I'm all about half as much, twice the quality, best you can afford sure. when sure. you do kind of philosophy. So I didn't think so much about that and people would joke with me and said, what do you put in your cocktails? Because we never feel bad the next day. <laughs> it was like a bit of a running joke. And funnily enough, I had written a guest article for a bartender magazine um, that was all about how you could prescribe cocktails for people's mood and health based on what uh, what kind of a day they'd had or how they were feeling. You know, I did things like really um, interesting medicinal ye old kind of drinks from centuries ago and I brought back a little cauldron into the bar and we would mix all sorts of things that were um, with things that apothecaries would serve. And if you look at um, Italian digestives like Braulio or um, Averna, uh, Ferne Branca, those were created for digestion support. Um, not very different to the herbal tonics you get given that are 44% alcohol as well from your naturopath. I had no mm. idea that we were going to go here. Well, you oh, there you go. Yes, I don't really talk about bartending in, in healthy podcasts, but there you go. Well, there, there's a tie-in. And I know what you were previously saying about uh, you're all about what we put in our bodies and on our bodies as well. And those two things aren't separate. But 
in terms of to simplify things a little bit, at least as we're starting off here, just talking about what we put in our bodies, whether it's the water that we drink and where we source it from, whether it's food and whether those are treated with pesticides or herbicides. And I've already used, I've heard you use the word holistic a little bit. And I know listening to previous conversations that you've had and other things that you've written, wellness, those two things, holistic and wellness, they seem to go together a lot. And you are somebody, in my opinion, who has a very clear view of the big picture. And there's a lot of things, a lot of variables that go into what we put into our body. I just want to start with something kind of general because one of my favorite books is a book called It Starts With Food. And the, mm. the title of it, It Starts With Food, is that everything, our holistic health starts with what we put in our body. And the primary thing that we put in our body is food. So from your yeah. perspective... Does it really all start with food or is there, or is there more to it? Well, you know, I think the word food um, can mean so many different things, Joel. Like, you know, a lot of people are fixated on nutrition and the science of like what's the, you know, the leaf that's the most nutrient-dense. One day it's kale, then we move on to watercress, then we're back to wheatgrass. You know, people are fixated on these tiny details, whereas food, for me, we need to step back. Again, big picture. Food, to be truly nourished and fulfilled in our lives, um, the stuff we put in our mouths is not our only food, and it certainly shouldn't be. And what I find is people can get quite unhealthy if that's what they fixate on and make their main marker for enjoyment, fulfillment, and nourishment. Um, as an example of that, uh, food as love with your kids, you know, the cupcake at 8.30 on a Tuesday morning that seems to be so normal now is a way of appeasing a child when maybe you actually the issue is you feel guilty that you don't get time with your child because you're on a double income um, that your mortgage says you absolutely have to be on to be working, you know, 60 hours a week. And so that becomes one of the quick ways we can give love, you know, where our society is becoming so, um, so busy that we're forgetting the many, the many faces food actually has that spending time together on a couch, reading a book, like, you know, spend time wasting time kind of thing is a beautiful food um, and essential food. I'd say it's one of the key food groups and one that most of us are pretty crappy at um, incorporating into our lives. So, yes, it starts with food, but we have to define food as the many things that food is and make sure we're not too focused in any one place that we get our food, whether that be what we put in our mouths, what we put on our skin, um, how we look after our money, how much free time we take. You know, the Danes are so good at his, which is hig, sorry, which is being kind to oneself. That is food. You know, you could eat the best, most organic, most fantastic diet in the world. And yet if you're working 80 hours a week, you have no partner because you have no time to hold a relationship down because you have no time to put (laughs) time into it or, um, you uh, are sitting down all day because that job asks that you sit down. You're not a healthy person. We're, we're fooling ourselves if we think we can make up for lack in other foods by being fixated on organic food, for example. 
Does well, that make sense? Yes, it does. And I want to pull yeah. in a couple of threads here. Uh, so mm-hmm. the first one is you started talking about giving the cupcake to your child at 830 to appease them to, or, to, mm. or to show them, hey, I love you. And here's a cupcake that proves it. It's, 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 mm-hmm. very, it's very clear. I'm giving you something delicious that I know you're going to like. And therefore, I love you, kid. And mm. I have to admit, I've done that with my two boys before. But, oh, we've all done it. Yeah. yeah. This is not a guilt. I never speak from a place of judgment. It is just factual pointing out of what right. goes on in our culture these days. Yeah. What the thing that I don't know if it's a contradiction, but the thing that surprises me is when just this past weekend, my wife and I, we invited a couple of our good friends over for a meal. And we spent so much time thinking about what they would like. We made sure that we actually got them a better version of chicken in terms of how it's prepared, how it's sourced, than we would normally feed ourselves. We, my wife and I, we take our role very seriously. When someone comes into our home and we feed mm. them food, we want them to leave healthier than when yeah. they came in. Well, that's yeah. a beautiful objective. For but if you're not children, doing it for yourselves... <laughs> yeah, and this is... Not that this is a, a new thought to me, but... well. First of all, I have a couple of kids who I don't know whether it's cultivated through what we've done through our food philosophy or just because it's karma coming back to bite Melinda and I in the butt because we were super picky kids. But all my kids really eat our bread and fruit. It's, okay. it's crazy. Even, even the stuff that I don't want to feed the kids, Alex, like nuggets, which sure they're organic, but they're processed. I mean, I look at the ingredients on the back. I'm like, really, am I buying this? And of course, the answer is yes, I am. For Grant, my five-and-a-half-year-old, if the nuggets, if the breading on the outside of the nuggets aren't the right color, (laughs) even though Mm. it's the exact same thing, he will refuse to eat them. And Mm. I'm wondering, one of the things in your food manifesto is you say, teach and cook with your kids. I'm looking at it right now as you say that. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's not really something that I've done yet. And I'm maybe for my own benefit or for the benefit of people who are listening into our conversation what kind of good, if I give my children a sense of ownership, a sense of education as I source, as I go grocery shopping, as I cook with my kids, what are the benefits that come out of that? You can never underestimate how important it is to include your kids in your family food conversation, the, the conversation you want to have as a family. Um, you can never underestimate how important that is to do that work. And it is work. Like you have to consciously say, we are going to do this. We know we need to do this. We are getting started tomorrow and this is the first step we'll take. You know, it's not about what we did before. There's no point in holding on to guilt from yesterday. But if our children are only eating, um, as you just said, it's so common, nuggets, white bread, fruit, um, it's because we said that was the way that they could do it. We, there was something about the way we communicated to them that meant that that was how it has ended up right now. And the best thing you can do is to stop taking them to a supermarket and start taking them to a farmer's market if you can get access to one. That would be my number one tip because there's no shiny lights, there's no brown and beige food, practically none. Maybe potato would be the only one. And potatoes are delicious. There's no, you don't need to stop eating them. Um, but there's so much colour and the colour is not in the form of petroleum-based fake weirdness. It's in the form that nature um, designed for us so ingeniously just like that. And, you know, I, I often give a talk that's around um, moving from product to produce and I think that's a really nice 
way for us to consciously think, okay, my family is going to focus on moving from products to produce. That doesn't mean you literally from one day to the next just stop buying anything in a packet and start buying only things from a farm. No, no, no. It just means that every time, say, some weird snack that you might have bought runs out, you think, okay, this is an opportunity for us to fill that product's space with some produce. That might be cashew nuts. That might be helping um, your kid to explore vegetables a little bit more. And, you know, it doesn't even matter if they don't eat them for the first few times. Just saying, if you were to pick one of these green vegetables for us to eat as a family, no pressure on eating it yourself, just if you were to pick one, which would you choose? And make them start choosing stuff and then make them start cooking stuff and just say, sweetie, you don't have to eat it. I just want you to know how to cook because it's it's a good thing to do and it's a fun thing to do with mummy or daddy. And kids are so much more likely to have a taste of something if they've put some effort into preparing it themselves first. Um, it's really quite mind-blowing. That's true. And Even when you sneak some egg yolk and avocado into the smoothie that you make. Yeah. Oh, brilliant way to get it in there. And all they think is, I'm having a chocolate milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if that's what you need to do to get the nourishment into a fussy eater um, sort of strategically to start with, that's fine. You know, hiding food, I'm not against it because nourishment is absolutely something we need to be super mindful of, especially in those early years when they're building their little brains and, you know, those are important times. But um, over time, just to start including them in the conversation, and, you know, I find we run a, I run a course with a fellow health coach called Thrive, Raising Kids Who Love Real Food, and we wrote that course because we recognised that parents are completely disempowered by, um, by the food conversation. We don't know what conversation to have with our kids other than, no, you can't have that, and yes, you can have that. That's what our culture has taught us to say um, based on healthy versus unhealthy. And when we say there's good food and there's bad food to kids, the bad food is still really exciting. If they taste that, it's going to taste great. And then we build shame, resentment, um, secret eating, all that kind of stuff into the picture. We're just setting them up to fail, whereas we just say there's real food and then there's weird stuff and I don't mind if you eat the weird stuff every now and then at a party but what we eat at home is, you know, the real stuff because that's our body's building blocks. We are what we eat. Um, Then let's try and figure out as a family how to make it exciting. Let's turn it into a project with Pinterest boards and everybody votes together which muesli slice we're going to make for the lunch boxes this week. Oh, no, you guys don't do lunch boxes over there, do you? You get fed through the school system but... um, Oh, we, well, we do lunch boxes. Oh, I, you do? I remember, oh. yeah, I, I could have been fed through the school system, but my parents decided to send me with a lunch box. I was the kid who always got the, the, the sandwich and the bag of plain popcorn, and I was always trying to trade it in grade school for a uh, little debit, right. like a Swiss cake roll or some kind of processed goodie. And my negotiation skills got quite good, Alex. 
<laughs> trying to hand off this plain bag of popcorn for something that was much more delicious. That was when I wasn't stealing kids' desserts, which I did yeah. in kindergarten. <laughs> I digress. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned, which I think is really important, you gave. there's probably 20 ideas in the last five minutes that you gave that anyone yeah, who's listening can latch onto just one or two of them. And that's what I really encourage people to do is something that they've already heard. If they want, they can hit pause and they can reflect on it for a moment and decide that. If I mm. do nothing else... I'm going to do that. And one yeah. of the things that you've said is, and this is, I think, a, a, almost I'm paraphrasing from a great conversation you had with our mutual friend, Brooke McCallery and the Slow oh, Podcast. Okay. You talked about great. doing the best that we can little by little. And that any step that you take along the path is progress. Yes. As long as you're being intentional so about important. it. so important. You know, and as you said, Joel, I did just mention quite a few things you could do. Key to success is to grow organically, um, pardon the pun, and just pick something and baby step your little toe into the water and, and just get a feel for, for, what, um, for what's working, what isn't. But, you know, definitely important to just get that child out of that supermarket environment. It is a fake fast food values environment that if you think about your values as a family, you know, I talked about values right at the start where you think, no, we're good people, we value honesty, we value hard work, we value... Um, gratitude uh, and gratitude kindness. I'm, kindness. I'm going from the family mission statement that we created. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. So these are the things that if you really sit down as a family, that, that's what you value above all. And then when you think about what these food companies value, it couldn't be more opposite to the values we just mentioned. And so to have a conversation with your kids, it doesn't matter if they're two. I, I, my child knew because I decided to basically treat him as an experiment for my education and building purposes, mm-hmm. I decided to teach him about marketing from birth and to say, you see how they put that monkey on that packet? That's to try and get little kids to buy it, even though it's super unhealthy because um, they know that little kids like cute cartoon pictures on, on product packets. And he would be able to tell you which was the unhealthy fake food cereal based on what was on the front of the packet. Interesting. Um, at did the you, age of two. Did your dad do something similar to you? Way back at the start of our conversation, you mentioned picking up rubbish uh, with your dad when you were young. The rubbish that you were picking up, whether it was plastic bottles or whether it was packages of some kind of junky processed food, did your dad, what, what did he say to you as you were picking up that trash? Did he tell you the story behind it or the marketing behind it? No. So really interestingly, dad was very um, into um, that whole clean up Australia movement in the 80s and was very into just keeping rubbish out of the oceans. Unfortunately, he never um, made the connect between how the rubbish got there in the first place and the companies that are responsible, you know, and this product-heavy society that we're in that means there is all this packaging in our oceans um, and all this plastic all around in landfill. So, no, we, we grew up, you know, my, when I was zero, one to five, we were in Chicago and that was... Uh, what, the mid-70s to the late-70s. So that was when feminism really hit its stride and women all headed out into the workforce. And what did the food companies do? They decided to take the conversation away from couples about who's going to cook now, you know, should we do half and half or how are we going to work this out as a family? And they stepped in and said, don't worry, we've got food taken care of, we'll make it all for you. 
Um, so convenient, right? But what that meant was my mum really bought into that. And we grew up as a very normal, convenient food driven family. Um, I was, I had the processed lunchbox and I was trading for the real food sandwiches. Ironically, that's why your story made me laugh. I was, <laughs> I was the kid who would have gone, sure, here, have mine. <laughs> I was curious about what I didn't have, you know. I think that's really what it is as a child. It's the curiosity of someone having something interesting and different to you. Um, But, yeah, so, no, I didn't get that food education at all. I was the one who became that food educator in my family much, much later in my mid-30s. Well, you are. I don't know if you are officially a historian, but there's so much that we can learn just from the history of how things came to be that the way they are. But now it's 2016 and we know we are where we are as a culture, as a species. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, one of the reasons why I was excited to have this conversation is there's a disconnect sometimes between, Mm -hmm. so you and I were talking about things that we can do as individuals, that we can do or that we can do at the family level. Things that impact, you know, one to five humans, for example, at a time. And the things that are good for us as individuals or as families, sometimes those are things that are poor for the planet. So for example, I know that you're into yoga, I'm into yoga too. The yoga mat that I bought a few years ago, I didn't think, what's in this yoga mat? What's it constructed out of? Um, how was it sourced from crap materials that hurt the earth when they were extracted? What's going to happen when I dispose of it? Is it going to end up in a landfill? Will it just sit there not degrading Mm. for centuries after I'm done with it? So do you have a tip or two that you can help people understand, even if you're making a positive choice as an individual, maybe it is not the overall best choice for the planet. Do you have an example of something like that? Look, yeah, I think food packaging is definitely one of them and food in general. Sometimes, you know, you see the little Instagram shopping cart and it's this person who's super excited about all the healthy things they've bought to put in a smoothie, Um, yet the almonds come all the way from California, Uh, the blueberries are from uh, an Eastern European country and, you know, so it's like this huge carbon um, (laughs) footprint in this shopping basket and it's all wrapped in packaging, cardboard, plastic, you name it. Um, So I think sometimes the things that are good for us might not be, as you say, good for the planet and it's really just about once you drive and just baby step it, it doesn't need to, you'd probably freak out and stress out if you did it all overnight, but just gradually as choices are able to be made, just say, oh, look, there's a website that sells um, fruit and veggie boxes and they source everything from my state. Um, surely that would be a better option than me going to the supermarket and getting, as a Sydney cider, my asparagus from Mexico and my pomegranates from the USA. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> like just to start thinking, do I really need asparagus in the middle of autumn when it's actually a spring fruit food, you know, and just like shopping. There's a lot to be said for making an 80-20 rule to shop with the seasons 80%. You know, I've got a box of crackers in my pantry right now that are from France. Do I feel guilty about that? No. You know, I know that I feel great about most of my choices and that 20%, it's not just about, you know, healthy, unhealthy food. For me, the world is not black or white. We can't exist 
in the world striving for perfection and feel good about ourselves in that process, we will always feel like a failure. I know you said you're an educator and I, you have a whole bunch of courses. I know you speak around Sydney area and probably internationally. There's all kinds of things that you've done and will continue to do. I am so impressed at what you represent and the good that you're doing in the world. But as you educate people and people are getting a history lesson as we're talking here, people are also getting a lesson in terms of marketing and a whole bunch of other things. What is it about your low tox community that nobody seems to know about until they actually get into it? (laughs) Do you know, I think a lot of people do my courses thinking, I want to eat healthier, or I just want to make sure I'm using um, safe shampoo on my kids. And it's just a very simple um, curiosity that might start someone into thinking low-tox. But what I have to do, because it just seems to me to make so much more sense to think to help people think big picture, to help people learn transferable skills so they don't just memorise a bunch of safe brands and then move on and, you know, never really understand deeply why the choices we make should be the choices we make. So um, I guess the way I seem to attract people is it's a positive community. There's no judgement. I might have one troll a month um, at most uh, through my Facebook or Instagram feeds. And and so people feel non-judged. And I think that's key. You, you match a curiosity that someone has, you know, searching for information with a, hey, this is a cool place to learn about stuff. You know, I was so adamant that everything I taught was positive and welcoming and an invitation as opposed to a an ultimatum. Um, or crazy fear-based messages. Sure, there's, there's people might feel fearful sometimes when I, I share something about the statistics around microbeads or triclosan or, you know, things. But we need to learn the facts. We've got to grow up, put our big girl pants on, big boy pants on, <laughs> um, and just learn this stuff and start becoming critical thinkers again because we seem to save critical thinking for our jobs and there's none for our personal lives and that just doesn't make any sense because... We, we need to think critically about what we're putting in our shopping baskets. What is a stat or two that kind of scares you or that you use strategically to say, see, look, look at what's going to happen if we don't change, if we don't start taking different actions than we are right now? One of my, um, well, favorite is probably not a great word to use. It's absolutely not the right word. We, but We get it. We get what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Something I find absolutely alarming is around endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, And in the chemical industry, it's a real innocent until proven guilty model, right? And the amount of money that the chemical lobby spends on stopping or keeping um, people from looking into researching independently is mind-boggling. It is millions and billions of dollars. Um, and we're fooling ourselves if we think differently. There are there is so much money in so many pockets that stops the average human, the average consumer learning the truth, um, and that really gets my justice goat. I'm like, you can probably hear it in my voice. <laughs> I'm not someone who gets upset or sad, but I'm compelled to action and and advocacy. So and you're that talking is- about fire retardants in the furniture that I buy. 
or what are some other examples of endocrine disruptors? Simpler, simpler. So BPA, for example. Mm -hmm. And so then finally, finally, because of huge consumer demand, there's some research done on BPA and they show that it's not just damaging your child, you're actually damaging three generations down the line. Um, So it is a disaster. But what we replace BPA with is something that the consumer hasn't heard of yet and hasn't got wind of yet that's actually just as bad. And that's going to take another 30 years, of course, for us to get research done on it to prove that it's no good. So um, hormone disruptors like BP8, like parabens, like phthalates in your synthetic in, uh, perfumes, the stuff that makes that perfume or that air freshener last all day long is actually hideously bad for our health. And in fact, phthalates in particular, um, and the slow death by rubber duck guys cover this as a chapter in their book, they uh, significantly decrease and mess around with sperm quality. Now that, you know, we've got all these couples out there doing um, IVF and it's like a massive booming industry. And, you know, On one hand, I love that couples are given a chance to conceive when they're finding it hard, but, hey, what if we took hormone disruptors out of the picture and stress levels came down? I betcha there wouldn't be much cause for IVF if we did those two things. I just can feel it in my bones from the research I've done, from the people I've spoken to. And so, you know, we've had four babies conceived since the very first low-tox course was done in 2014. Um, from couples who specifically wrote to me privately and said, we just cannot believe that by changing our personal care and cleaning products and starting to meditate, we've been able to actually conceive um, and go to term and we can't actually explain how grateful we are for the course. Now, I'm not making promises, Joel. I'm really not. I'm just sharing some goosebumpy stuff that gets shared with me from people who really had pride everything, everything that our culture tells us we should do to have babies, except our culture isn't telling us to take the stress levels down a notch um, and to ditch the weirdo stuff in our personal care. I've spoken to many doctors who aren't even aware of it, you know, and they're great people. We're all just operating within the lens of our current knowledge as no one should be judged for what they know today because no one's taught them different. So I love the community aspect of what you're doing through your courses. And you, you seem to be somebody who's like me, who just loves to bring people together and educate uh, in the yeah. process and do it in an mm. unjudgmental way. One, there's a wonderful book that I read about community. It's actually by a guy named Peter Block. It's called Community, the Structure of Belonging. And in that book, he talks about all these different questions that we can have as a community, whether it's at the local level, whether it's all these wonderful people spread across the world in the Facebook group. One of the key questions that he poses that we answer for ourselves is what declaration of possibility can we make that has the power to transform the world and inspire you? And as I hear you talk, I feel like we've touched on it a little bit. But it would be nice to make it explicit. So, Alex, I'm curious to hear from you. What declaration of possibility can you make that has the power to transform the world and inspire you in the process? For me, it's just helping people join the dots between their values and the purchases and choices they make. Because if you actually, just as we talked about the family values around choosing food with your kids and helping them learn about what's right and wrong, um, 
with every choice we make in our lives, we can so drastically shape shape the world from our shopping baskets. People just don't even realise, but we're already doing it by building these thoughtful, conscious communities who are either saying just buy less, um, you know, that minimalism, um, pairing things back, do we really need everything, how much are we attaching to um, success by owning stuff, right through to um, do we really need 10 different skincare products? Could we actually survive with two? And then what's in those products? Then we can quite easily put food companies out of business who aren't doing the right thing by people and planet. We can, we can see it with Mars. They just made an announcement that they're not going to be using petroleum-based colours anymore in their M&Ms. If that's not consumer grassroots action in motion, I don't know what is. You know, we're seeing Hershey's ditching GMOs. We're seeing um, people start to label GMOs, uh, huge companies that four years ago were paying millions to prevent a bill saying you have to label GMOs. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it, and that is all from people like you and me, as you said, just coming together in communities joining the dots between our values and what we want our kids to grow up with in terms of their values and the world around them and realising that if we make different choices, by default we change huge big picture industry um, goings on because at the end of the day they're not going to make stuff we don't want to buy. That just doesn't make business sense. So where are they going? They're buying up organic companies. They're changing the way. You know, there's Oreos have organic Oreos now, for Christ's sake. So, really? <laughs> yes. I probably shouldn't know that, actually. That's, <laughs> that's a bad thing for me to know. I'm going to pretend like you didn't say that. <laughs> Make your own biscuits, Joel. It would still be much better. <laughs> okay. Do a recipe. Um, but you, yeah. No. You, your recipes. Oh, my goodness. And we haven't touched on it yet, but... If you are into Instagram or Pinterest or anything, the eye candy that you put out there and the brain candy, I can feel my brain lighting up when I look at your feeds and when I look at the recipes that you share on your website. And there's there's a lot of other great stuff. I, actually, I want to encourage people to go to your website, Low Tox Life, and there's a, a course that you run, it seems like, how, how often, the Lotox Life e-course, do you run yes. it every couple of months? Uh, I did tell, last tell how this year. Works. This year I'm going to be running it twice. So there's only two opportunities to jump on board this year, um, simply because if I spend my time, all of my time in coaching land, because I do a lot of coaching when we're live with the course, I'm finding I'm not producing enough um, new work and um, not doing enough learning myself. I think as a teacher you really have to admit how important stepping back and filling up your own cup is so important to then be able to keep giving. Um, And so I'm only running it twice this year. Uh, It's coming up again, though, in May, second week of May, May 9, and um, we can share that in the show notes. And I've got a little um, offer for you guys. I'm going to do a code, LOTOX10, and that will give you 10% off. Um, I make my courses really inexpensive because 
I believe everybody should have access to this information and I believe that we can change the world and I don't want just rich people to be able to pay $2,000 for my private coaching. I want everybody for 130 bucks to be able to jump on board and, um, and access the information. So I much prefer having, you know, hundreds of people in there and really going, go team, let's do this and everyone being motivated by everyone's changes instead of an elite group of 30 that just doesn't spin my tires at all. So I really um, encourage everybody to just take the month out of your life to work on your life. It's only an hour a day probably about that commitment-wise and the conversations in the group are just so awesome as people join the dots for themselves and share really positive ideas and also share their challenges. You know, it's not a picnic every day and Maybe someone's partner is going to be really against it and then we workshop in the group how to get that person to come around and one of my big things is um, always making someone else the bad guy. Don't you be some preacher off the back of someone's e-course saying you're doing everything wrong and I know all this stuff now but watch a documentary together, you know, join, do it together and, and really um, take people along for the ride instead of becoming authoritarian in your family space. That never goes down so well. No, so, but, no, yeah, it's a big course. It's a big course, and it's a couple of times this year, so May's the next one. Well, it sounds fantastic. I will have a link in the show notes. Uh, and, again, the, I'll, I'll repeat uh, the, the coupon and, and give all the details in a little post-production after we're done chatting. But there is one more thing that I would like to ask you. Yeah. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like mm-hmm. people to know? Um, do you know, I, I will just talk about treats. Can we do that for just a couple of minutes? Because so something I find really interesting is the tone that we use around food, uh, whether it's for ourselves or whether it's for kids. And I think because, um, anyone who grew up in the eighties and nineties was told you have to eat this much broccoli, like, you know, all these formulaic kind of plans to supposedly make us a healthy person, made that small amount of treat food that you could eat really exciting and super special. And treats uh, 50 to 100 years ago were nowhere near the weirdo chemical cocktails they are today. And I really am very passionate about bringing people back to experiencing treats as just a lovely part of the whole of the food that we eat and um, also as real treats as opposed to strange chemical cocktails. So a a Pop-Tart, which um, I used to love, by the way, um, I certainly wasn't born a yogi drinking green smoothies on a hill. Um, (laughs) I was, as I said, convenience child of the 80s eating everything. Uh, you know, these these chemical cocktails in our Twinkies and Pop-Tarts and and compound chocolates and, and bars and things are not real treats. You know, call a treat a treat by all means, but make sure it's real. I, I often think if you're going to have something sweet every day, sugar is probably the least of your worries if you're just having one small sweet thing and just make something at home, you know, re-explore that beauty of becoming a great baker and being able to whip up a cake for afternoon tea on the weekend when friends come over. People think you're a genius if you can cook these days. That's the crazy thing. So, um, you know, the book that I wrote, which you can get on Amazon called uh, Real Treats, funnily enough, really helps people deconstruct um, what they call a treat psychologically and, um, and reconnect with what should be in your pantry, what 
what what you could get rid of and um, and how to just make great treats. It's actually not hard. It's just that food companies have convinced us for decades that making our own food is beneath us or that we don't have time or that their treats are better. And in terms of chemical response in our brain, they are better, but they have engineered those bliss points with millions of dollars of research, right? So it's not a real treat and it's time to reconnect to what treats really are. And I know a lot of people struggle with, you know, oh, I shouldn't have the M&Ms. And I just love helping people go, oh, as if I would even touch those. That's, that's weird, you know, and really learning about why it's weird. That's a cool place to be. Well, mm. folks want to learn more about your philosophy and the practical things that you have to offer. And if they want to, I, I recommend if you're going to go to Low Tox Life or follow you on Instagram or anywhere else, people should get a napkin or a bib or something because they're probably <laughs> going to be wiping up drool. But if people want to explore your world more, Alex, where would you like them to find you? Just come find me at lowtoxlife.com and I have all my social shares on there that you can click through to. Excellent. Super simple. And sweet. Yeah. Short and sweet. Love it. <laughs> well, thank you so very, very much for having a wonderful conversation with me, teaching me and everyone else a ton in the process. Thank you so much, Joel. It's been great. All right. How did you like that chat? Infused with nuggets like how to combine shopping with the seasons and the 80-20 rule? Yes, yes. I dug it like a Bugs Bunny digs carrots. I hope you thought it was pretty darn nifty as well. Now, it's early April 2016 as I publish this episode. So keep in mind that Alex's Low Tox Life e-course is running for the last time this year in May. You can check out the details at joelzaslavsky.com slash course and use coupon code LOWTOX10, the number 10, to get 10% off. I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine that coupon code LOWTOX10 is only good for groups of people going through the course in 2016, in case you're listening to this episode beyond May 2016. If you want, you can find links to all the other stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, more good stuff in the show notes. Those are at joelzeslovsky.com slash SASM097. The grooviness you're going to find there, it is so good. So good. I'm going to say it one more time. joelzaslovsky.com slash SASM097. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community at joelzaslovsky.com slash support. You know, in case Mary's message at the top of the show wasn't enough. <laughs> well... I would love it if you would tell me what you think of the new intro music. Maybe my singing skills, a suggestion for a future guest, maybe a solo episode topic, anything else you have on your mind. My email is joel at joelzaslavsky.com. I'm on Twitter at joelzaslavsky, last name spelled Z-A-S-L-O-F-S-K-Y. But really, let's, let's just have a rockin' month together. And I just need you to know one more time, I appreciate, I absolutely appreciate the heck out of you, your time, and your attention. Thank you. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zeslowski, 
Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on.